nothing surprising with this homily. I'd like to talk about something that I am unqualified to talk about, but regardless, the readings seem to suggest that we should be talking about them. And that topic is how to love your family to the point that they desire to convert, particularly our family that is not practicing. How, what can I do to help them to convert? The reason I say this is because Paul speaks this very curious line in the second reading. I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous and thus save some of them. What he's saying is, I rejoice in my ministry. His race is the Jewish people. He wants to save them, and the only way that he is going to do this is by making them jealous of his ministry of Christ. And by doing that, he hopes to at least save some of them. He's not expecting to save all of them. He's hoping to at least save some of them. And so I want to go into the more curious of these readings, the gospel, to talk about how it is that Jesus wants us to respond so that, like Paul, we can live in such a way to where we make our brothers jealous for Christ in order that we may save some of them. So let's fast forward to the gospel. And as I've said, it's a curious one. In fact, it's so curious, I had a first this morning. I went to uh, Como Park to play pickleball at 7 a.m. this morning. There was, there's always some guys that are out there and they start playing like 5 a.m. They're incredible. And they stop their point and they say, Father, what's going on with the gospel today? I don't understand it. Which was weird on a lot of different levels. Like, is there a pickleball Bible study that I don't know about? Because it's 7 a.m. and you already know what the gospel is, you know? What is so striking about this gospel that you stop what you're doing? But it is as ridiculous as it sounds. Jesus, radiant, tender, lamb on his shoulders, as we see depicted often, is traveling with his disciples, and a foreigner, really an outcast, is coming to him because her daughter is tormented by a demon. She yells this, and Jesus ignores her. She yells it again. And then, as ridiculous as it sounds, Jesus insults her, saying, it's not right to give the food that belongs to the children to the dogs. She insults, she's insulted by Christ. But then after that is whenever the story shifts, and here... Christ uses this Canaanite woman as an example for the Jews who to this point have pretty much rejected the gospel. Jesus is going to the house of Israel, but he tells his disciples, hey, look, and at the end of the day, when they reject you, dust uh, your sandals off when you walk from their homes. And so I want to examine the four actions that Jesus elicits 
from this Canaanite woman so as to make an example of the Jews that he's trying to convert so that we can know how to respond to Christ, hopefully to make our family, as St. Paul says, jealous so that we might save some of them, not expecting to save all. The first, this woman recognizes she has a particular problem. She comes to Jesus with a concrete issue. My daughter is tormented by a demon. How does this relate to us? We all probably tell ourselves and tell our family, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. We all know that we're not Christ. We know that we're not perfect. But very often, we forget just exactly how we're a sinner. It's very cheap to tell our family that maybe has fallen away, hey, look, I'm a sinner just like you. That means nothing. We're all sinners. If you don't know that, then you're a delusional narcissist. But it is way more real and way more concrete to say something the lines of, I struggle with envy, and it's because you always were more appreciated by my parents and by some of my friends growing up, and I know that I lash out sometimes with that way, and that I can be a little vindictive, and I'm sorry about that, and I want to be more generous. That costs something to say. That is a real problem, and that is a real sin. A real sin. And we only commit real sins. We don't commit hypothetical ones. Understanding what is my particular sinfulness, and along with that, I'll get a little bit more specific, understanding what spiritual writers call my dominant fault. We all have something called a dominant fault. That from this particular vice, a lot of other vices come. It's maybe because I'm prideful that I think I'm self-entitled and that I can then be envious and then be wrathful and so on and so forth. If I understand that thoroughly, then I can interact with enough humility with my family to know that I'm alongside them. The second thing that she does is that she recognizes who she is. Again, Jesus uses her as an example to the Jews to show the grace of salvation is totally free and unmerited, that she's a dog. And she recognizes that about herself. She's not offended whenever Jesus calls her that. And because of that, she's not entitled. That sense of entitlement is, in my past, just in my pastoral experience, the thing that keeps most people away from converting. Whether it is like perceived entitlement, so whether it's like a Protestant saying like, oh, those Catholics think that they have the truth, that they're right and we're wrong. That's maybe perceived entitlement. But, or maybe it's like a, tr a truly perceived entitlement where we think because we go to daily mass or because we pray a holy hour that we truly enact and care ourselves as better than and condescendingly so upon our family. No one wants to follow someone like that. No one wants to say, you know what I want to be when I grow up is a condescending jerk who knows better than everyone else. That's what I want to be when I grow up. That's just not the case. And so 
we actually have this Mass today on someone who lived that well. St. Bernard's Memorial is celebrated today, and he was able to convince 30 of his relatives to enter the monastery. And the reason why he did that was because he was entering at the same time. Point is, St. Bernard ran the race with his family. It's not for us to try to stand at the end of the finish line and then tell people how far they have to come or how they should pace themselves to finish the race. The Canaanite woman is not entitled, and neither should we be. We should know who we are, that we are always beggars before the Lord. The third thing that the Canaanite woman does do, and this seems obvious, but it isn't for us, is that she lets her daughter be healed. Again, the Canaanite woman is not scandalized that she's called a dog. She's not shocked by the problem, and she's not shocked by how unworthy she is to receive grace. And by letting her daughter be healed, she is accepting that this is a free gift. How this translates for us is that knowing my dominant fault, knowing maybe that I'm particularly envious, particularly wrathful, particularly prideful, or particularly gluttonous, whatever it is, that I actually try to make progress to fix that. I don't get permission to say like, oh yeah, because I know my problem, I'm good to go. I have to actually seek to be more virtuous within that. If I don't try to make that progress, then I cannot expect progress from my family. And then the fourth, and this is not spoken in the scriptures, but you would assume it's obvious. The woman goes home rejoicing. It's not spoken in the scriptures. But I imagine she did not walk away from that interaction with Christ saying, I can't believe that the son of David called me a dog. She probably walked away saying, I can't believe that my daughter is healed of her demons. If we are truly seeking healing, if we're truly seeking to grow in virtue and to rid ourselves of sin, the natural, unspoken effect of that is joy. And that is the joy that will make our family jealous. And that is the joy that from that divine jealousy that we might save at least some of them.